and uh, pick up your Bibles and turn back to that uh, wonderful story there in Judges chapter 3. This is the third installment in the book of Judges. We're going to be trying to work all the way through this. Uh, and we're, we're getting into the exciting stories about particular individuals and what they did during this period of history. Let's pray before we start. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we sit or stand before your word, we want to acknowledge that it is your word, that it contains your truth, that it is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, please help us to feel the cut of it tonight. And Lord, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, a few years, uh, a few years back, Sarah, my wife, and I got the opportunity to visit, visit some missionary friends who were on home assignment uh, in Bozeman, Montana, of all places. Lovely location to go to. Uh, we got a free holiday out of it, just had to pay for the flights. And uh, sitting in a hot tub on the veranda, you could see snow-covered mountains all around, all around the house. One day, looking at those mountains, we decided we'd like to try and go skiing. Now, I've never skied before, uh, and I've never skied since. I thought it would be worth a go. I mean, how often do you get a chance to have a free go at skiing? I mean, try something new. So we headed up to a ski resort in the local mountains uh, where our friends hired us or borrowed for us the necessary gear, and we set out onto the snow. Uh, standing outside for, my, for the first time ever in my life on skis, my friend Tim told me that it was all very straightforward. All I had to do and I, I quote, was lift my right leg if I wanted to go left and vice versa and point the tips of the skis together to slow down. Sounds good, doesn't it? No sweat. So we all hopped onto a ski lift and uh, went up to the top of a very high slope. I wish skiing was that easy, don't you? I don't know how many of you have tried this. Once I started going downhill, it all got rather fast and it's a bit of a blur. But I can tell you this, nothing worked. Nothing worked at all. I came rapidly to a right turn, <coughs> so I lifted my left leg, as I'd been told. Now I was just hurtling towards the bend on one leg. <laughs> I tried braking. <laughs> that didn't work either. All I could do was to ditch myself into the snow repeatedly all the way down this hill, almost dislocating my knees for the trouble. It took a very long, and I'm not kidding, it took me a long, a painful hour to fall down that slope bit by bit. Sarah, Sarah delights to tell me that this is the one thing, she, physical thing she knows in life that she's been instantly better at than I, than I am. She takes delight in that. Finally, I emerged bruised and battered at the bottom of the slope. I didn't go back up again. <laughs> Uh, we wondered where you'd got, got to. I was asked at the end, where did you go? I retired to the bar. And it was over five, I'm not kidding, over five months before the muscles here were, were fully repaired in my chest. Unbelievable experience. Now, in many ways, my plight there was much like the plight of the nation of Israel in the book of Judges. Let me explain. See, I knew the theory. I've been told the theory really clearly but I just couldn't make it work. 
So I found myself repeatedly out of control, relentlessly uh, cascading downwards, unable to stop myself or get any control. Likewise, Israel, as we've started into the book of Judges, they knew God's law. They knew that. They had the books of the law. They had the tabernacle set up in Shiloh. They had the priests. They had the scriptures. They had all of that. Yet they constantly, through this book, what the author's showing us is this spiraling downwards into idolatry and wickedness repeatedly, over and over. They're enslaved. And, and not just by the tyrants of the nations around them that come in and enslave them. They're enslaved by their sin. No sooner have they got uh, back on their feet again, as it were, they fall. And they fall harder, and they fall harder each time they fall. That's, that's really an overview of the book of Judges right there, isn't it? See, they can bring about no change of heart. As a nation, they just can't turn. They cannot repent and walk with God for longer than five minutes, it seems. And that's very like us, isn't it? It's very, that's very reminiscent of the human condition in generally. Yet, as we saw last week, time and, time and again, what happens is that they cry out in the misery of the condition that they've got themselves into. Fallen by the wayside under God's wrath. They cry out, and the Lord sends over and over again a deliverer to rescue them, to lead them once again. And this is the cycle that repeats throughout the book with every one of the 12 judges that we see here and that we read about. So we read in verse 11, if you look down, we didn't quite read uh, from here. We read in verse 11 about Othniel. He's the first judge. We don't read much about him. But he delivered them from that guy there with an unpronounceable name, Kushan Rishathaim. Well, Othniel, after having delivered them, died. And it reads like, as you read through the book here, as you read through this chapter, it reads like no sooner was his body in the ground that verse 12, you get that expression there again. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is really important. Why is it that we can't just properly change our hearts and faithfully follow the Lord. Why can't we just do that? Grit our teeth and do it. Make that change. Why do we like Israel in this book? And we know this, don't we? Why do we always sink to the lowest common denominator? Why can't they, why can't we just straighten up and fly right? Why can't you just get your, get your act together? Pull your socks up. Live right. I mean, actually, when you look at the history of the church, a lot of part of the, of the church, certainly the, the universal church, the church of Rome, that's really where the emphasis went, wasn't it? Come on, people. Try harder. Get your act together. Fly right. Why can't we do it? Because, because it's just not in us. It's not in us to do that. Joshua, who dies at the beginning of this book, he knew that, funnily enough. Very interesting. Uh, just flick back with me to the end of the book of Joshua. It's only a couple of pages back. Chapter 24, verse 19. Have a look at this. I wonder if you've ever spotted this at the end of the book of Joshua. Verse 19 of chapter 24 there. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. Isn't that amazing? 
He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. It's a staggering thing to say to God's people, isn't it? And it's crucial we understand this. Joshua did, didn't he? We cannot of ourselves, by which I mean we cannot just by trying really, really, really hard, change our hearts and our inclinations that by our very nature pull us away from God and into sin. That's the human condition. You've got to get to grips with that. That is how the Bible describes our hearts. We can't save ourselves. We can't just stop sinning. We're unable to just turn over a new leaf and go the right way. Because like Israel, we are slaves under the tyranny of sin. He's our master. Notice the way that the writer puts it. It's quite a frustrating thing, and it's repeated throughout the book. He got it twice here. Verse 12, once again the Israelites did evil. It's like he's almost expecting it. Verse 15, again. You can almost put that in there, can't you? Every time you go through the book, again the Israelites cried out. Again the Israelites did evil. You ever felt that way about your own situation? I mean, honestly. Once again, Andy has done evil. He's let God down. He's had those thoughts. He said those words. He's behaved that way. Again, Andy cries out to the Lord, what a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? You ever felt that? It's like that damsel in distress that you get in all of those old films tied to train tracks. You know, we need a rescuer, someone to come charging in, a hero to untie us, carry us off into the sunset so that we can live happily ever after. That's what we need. We're helpless on our own. And that's also what Israel need in this episode contained in the following verses. Just look at them from verse 12 onwards. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Amorites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years at the hands of the dreadful tyrant king, Eglon. Now, the the name Eglon, rather fittingly, according to verse 17, means circular. Okay, there's a good reason for that. I like to think it's sort of probably maybe closer to spherical. Okay, King, I, I wonder actually whether that was his real name or whether that was just the name that perhaps Samuel, writing this down around the campfire with the young Jewish boys, is the name he gave him. King Spherical, King Circular. This is the man. Picture in your minds a Jabba the, I don't know if you know the film, Jabba the Hutt from the, the sort of Star Wars films, that huge, great slug creature. He's like that, decadent and sickening. That's what I have in my mind, because my mind's slightly twisted. Spreading his kind of flabby bulk over the couch in his opulent summer palace on the outskirts, we're told, of the City of Palms, which is another name for Jericho. And there he is. And having united two other nations, we read, in attacking Israel, helping him out, the situation seems to have been something like the way that the mafia operate uh, in the movies, with tributes 
or protection money being extorted out of people under the threat of violence. That's how the situation worked in these days. The big bully comes in, conquers you, and then asks you for money so that he'll leave you alone. For 18 years, this cruel man has oppressed and subjected the Israelites to slavery. And again, in verse 15, we read, we read, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. And in their brokenness, when all the pride and arrogance and folly has been beaten out of them, verse 15, God sent them a deliverer. When they're right down at the depths, here comes the deliverer. So having set the scene, the story that follows is, uh, is the focus here, and it's a story of deliverance. Uh, and you need to enjoy this story. That's why it's been written the way it's been written. It's a story to be enjoyed. Now, I know it, it, you can say it's squeamish, and it's, it's, a bit, it's actually a bit crude, and we like to sanitize these things. I'm, I'm interested to see that actually more modern translations of the Bible, and I've gone back over the Hebrew to check this, have actually got the words a bit, a bit more gritty, because they are gritty. But let me take you through the story. Verse 15, if you look down, introduces us to Ehud, a left-handed man, we're told, the son of Gerar the Benjamite. Now, that's going to be an important detail. He's a lefty. Yep, he uses his left hand. And he gets chosen, Ehud gets chosen to take the protection money to Eglon, to pay off Eglon on behalf of the Israelites. That's the scene set, isn't it? And as he knows he's been chosen, he then scratches his head and thinks, oh, there's an opportunity here. And so he goes about crafting for himself a double-edged sword, one cubit long. That's that sort of length. That's sort of a cubit, isn't it? So about a foot and a half long, a sharp, double-edged sword. And he straps it, because he's a lefty, he straps it to his right thigh underneath the clothing. Uh, then he makes his way to Eglon at his City of Palms residence. And he presents the tribute. And then on the way back out, he sends his companions away to go home, onwards without him, and he turns back and returns to the palace and tells the king, I've got a, I've got a secret message for you, Eglon. Secret message. Amazingly, I mean, only by the hand of God, I think, Eglon then thinks, oh, I'd like to hear that. And send, it's a secret one, so he sends his guards away. And they make their way into the upper room, the cool room of the palace, as it's called. And Ehud says to Eglon, Eglon, I have a message from God for you. At this, Eglon's curiosity is piqued. And he rises from his seat. And as he's getting up, Ehud grabs his sword with his left hand and plunges it into Eglon's belly. You know, last time I told this story to a church congregation, I had people acting it out for me. It was great fun. He plunges the sword into Eglon's belly. And you've got to get the, the, the details are here. The narrator tells us that the handle sunk in after the blade. It goes all the way in. His body absorbs the entire sword. It's quite big, isn't it? And uh, when it came out of his back, or probably more correctly, his backside, um, a bit of poop falls out. The King James Version, actually, is more graphic than 
uh, our, our version we're using, the church Bibles, puts it as, as dirt comes out. But the new NIV, which, of which I've started to become a bit more um, appreciative of, says his bowels discharged at this point. And so Ehud has no choice but to leave the sword in there with the hand. He leaves the whole implement in there like a clumsy surgeon after an operation. It's all in there. Are you feeling a little bit queasy now? <laughs> it's not the most pleasant story. Then Ehud makes a sharp exit. He leaves the room. He locks the doors behind him and makes his way, makes his escape. Well, the story continues. After a while, the guards come to check that everything's okay. Where's Eglon? Where's King Spherical? We haven't seen him for a while. In verse 24, if you look, they assume Eglon is relieving himself. He must be in the, uh, you know, the little boy's room. And they start to get a bit concerned. I mean, why would they make that conclusion? <laughs> it's a good question, isn't it? Verse 25 tells us they waited to the point of embarrassment when it had been ages you know, they're sort of maybe shouting into the room, hey, you okay? You okay, Oglon? Did you fall in? No answer, so they send for a key, and as they open the door, there is their lord, Eglon, on the floor, dead. Cold dead. And Ehud has escaped. And after he's made his escape, he blows the trumpet, rallies the Israelite warriors, and they win a great victory, slaying 10,000 Moabites, and Moab becomes their subject, and they have peace for 80 years. That's the story. It's a good story, isn't it? You can see why it's a sort of campfire boy story. So what's it all about? It's not just a gratuitous story in there for our entertainment. It's for our instruction. This story tells us a lot about the God who rescues and how he rescues. First of all, let's look at the nature of his rescuer. The first thing, you see that in verses uh, 15 to 16. The few details that we're told or can surmise about Ehud is that he is left-handed, he's clearly a forward planner, a bit of a schemer, and he's an opportunist, an opportunist. He's also a capable leader. And Ehud is a man chosen because he doesn't mind getting his hands dirty, literally. What really stands out, though, in this whole episode is the sovereign planning, the overarching planning of God in raising up this particular man for this particular job. The only real significance, you see, of Ehud being left-handed is that it allows him to get a sword through Moabite security and to give him the element of surprises. Did you get that? You know, a quick visual exam and a pat-down in the right places where you'd expect, they won't pick, up the, won't pick up on the weapon. No doubt the guards, Eglon's secret service, would have been able to spot this Israelite was packing heat by making that examination the usual way, but he gets through it. By God's sovereign design, his deliverer evades detection. He's the right man for the job. But he's only the right man because the Lord has raised him up for this. And surely that's what the narrator's getting at. What you have here in the story, you see, is a perfectly ordained opportunity. It's tribute delivery time. And a perfectly appointed assassin. Let's choose Ehud, the left-handed man. A perfectly designed weapon. A weapon 
probably without a cross piece on it, without a hilt. The whole thing can go into the, gut, into the, into the, into the man and spill his guts. And the guards come back from their coffee break just after Ehud has slipped out. Perfect timing. He's locked the door on his way out, which can, combined with the smell of freshly opened bowels, as it were, convinces the guards that King Eglon is sitting on the porcelain throne at this point and should not be disturbed. You see how it all fits together? The whole scene scenario just works and clicks. Well, they wait until the point of embarrassment, we're told. The timings are perfect, and that allows Ehud to slip away and rally the troops and return to victory. And we are supposed to see that not just Ehud, but the Lord God himself is behind this deliverance. That's a theme throughout the book, actually, isn't it? It's the Lord who delivers. He delivers through these people, but it's the Lord who delivers. Because that's the God of Israel. He's on the case. He's in control. An interesting contrast here, to make that point, is contrast the gods of the Moabites, Eglon's gods that he's brought with him. Did you notice the references to the idols? Or, or, or in modern, more modern translations, the stone images? You get them twice in this story. Once on the way in, once on the way out. In verse 19, Ehud hatches his plan right beside them. That's where the plan gets started. Right beside them. That's where he turns. And what do they do? Nothing. Verse 26, Ehud escapes right in front of their eyes as they sit there, still doing nothing, like statues, funnily enough. The statue, right before their eyes, he comes and he goes and he executes his plans. They can do nothing. They're not like the God of Israel. See, this is the God of the Bible. He sits in the control room of the universe and he works out everything in conformity to his purpose and will. So that's the deliverer. Now, next note, the manner of the rescue. The manner of the rescue. See, my boys obviously love this story. They've always loved this story since they were very, very small. Maybe it's just the way I tell it. I don't know. But they love this story. I, I may have mentioned this to some of you before, but whenever uh, my family goes to a coffee shop and I order a, a nice cappuccino, I always get a cappuccino, the kids come up to me and say, Daddy, do an egg long. And so I have to do an egglon because my children request it. An egglon in our family is where you pour the sugar that you're going to put in the coffee into a pile in one place on the top of the foam milk. And brown sugar does the best job here. And then we wait and all stare at it until it plunges into the, through the milk into the coffee and a little bit of coffee comes back out. <laughs> closes and the hole closes up. Funnily enough, you know, I, I, uh, at my old church, uh, I, I, meet, I used to meet dads for years after telling that story to them. And they say, oh, our kids, I was out with the kids on Saturday and we did an egg long. I said, did you teach them what it's about? And they said, yes. See, I have at least one commentary that I inherited from my dad, an old commentary, that takes an entirely allegorical approach to this story. That means that the author kind of sanitizes everything 
and sees behind everything in the story something symbolic, so we can avoid the nastiness of the story, uh, and it's all symbolic of some other truth. So in this particular book, Eglon, circle, is the law of unceasing, wearying, circling change. Okay. Moab, the world away from God. Ehud, some principle or spirit that must rule the Lord's people for their deliverance. The sword, obviously, the word of God. And interestingly, nothing about the dirt, the poop that comes forth from Eglon's wound. Nothing in there. It's sanitized. Why take that approach? Because it sanitizes what is otherwise, in our minds, a bit of a distasteful part of the Bible. But it's here. This is God's word to us. I mean, you can understand why people do this. After all, you don't find many Sunday school sheets on this story, do you? I think that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> I think some coloring sheets, you know, for the Eglon story would be great. Because what you see here is the rescuing God. Please hear this. Is the rescuing God who is not afraid to get his hands dirty. That's what the story's all about, isn't it? Every detail is part of God's salvation plan, right down to the dirt. Listen to what one, obviously, American writer says here. The God of the Bible does not hold back in the wild blue yonder somewhere, waiting for you to pour Clorox and spray Lysol over the affairs of your life before he will touch it. He is the God who delights to deliver his people, even in their messes, and likes to make them laugh again. He is the God who allows weeping to endure for a night so that joy comes in the morning. Thirdly, though, you need to see the patience and the kindness of God in this story. The legacy of the rescue. And you see that at the end here in verse 30 of chapter 3, and also in the first verse of chapter 4. It seems that under the leadership of Ehud, what we're told is, and perhaps also under Shamgar, uh, who was rather handy with an ox goad, we read, the nation of Israel then enjoys 80 years of peace. Listen, that's a lifetime of peace, isn't it? That's, li that's peace for living memory, really. Did they deserve it? No. It was the grace of God. He comes to a wayward and a distressed people, and he rescues them. And he humiliates and decimates their enemies, and he gives them peace. All of these wonderful, gracious blessings from God. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil. There's no change in them, really, as a nation. You see, Ehud is a great rescuer, but he cannot release them from their greater enemy, master sin, the mastery of sin. And there it is again. They just can't turn the tide. It's like I said last week. As soon as the teacher leaves the classroom, what happens? Anarchy. As soon as he removes the restraining hand of his judge, their true heart is once again revealed. And it's a heart that hasn't changed. For that, you need a better rescuer even better rescuer. God's ultimate rescuer, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. And his story was also a gritty, gory story. Conceived amid scandal, 
born in the filth of a stable, a baby laid in an eating trough, raised in the backwaters of Galilee to a working-class family, rejected by his own people, despised by the authorities, beaten, bloodied, nailed to a cross. But what a salvation. He came to save the powerless. He came to save those in the grip and in the slavery and in the tyranny of sin. Unable to break the cycle. Unable to change. Unable to turn to him and believe in him. Listen to how the Apostle Paul spoke to his generation about these very things. He says in Acts chapter 5, verse 30 and 31, The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Here again, But this time, in its most vivid glory, you see the rescuing God at work, who goes the whole way to rescue his people, granting repentance and forgiveness to all who will look in their distress, humbled and looking in distress, all who will look to him. Perhaps you know that endless struggle, that futile battle with sin. A battle you cannot win. If that's so, will you look to him today? Look to the great deliverer. Will you take your distress to Jesus and cry out to him? He has smashed and broken the grip of the greatest tyrant. Greater even than fat King Eglon. He's broken the grip of the mastery of sin. He has humiliated and defeated all the powers of evil, and won the final, ultimate victory for his people. And he will fit you out. He will equip you for the fight every day. And he alone will lead his people into full possession of their inheritance and bring them not just 80, not just 80 years, but everlasting peace. He's the deliverer that this deliverer points to. He's the great deliverer.